0: So this morning, if you'd open your Bibles, we are going to talk about Psalm 2. We're actually going to start in Psalm 1. The reason being, these psalms are actually one unit. So Psalm 1 and 2 are actually separate from the rest of the 148 psalms. They act as an introduction and a basis on which the rest of the psalms stand. They set the groundwork for everything that is to come in the Psalms. So a couple of things I want you to think about before we get into our text this morning. Psalm 1 provides us with the insight into the purpose of the book. While Psalm 2 provides us a window in the message of the Psalms as a whole. I know that sounds very poetic. I didn't come up with that. Uh, Mark Fatado, who actually teaches at the seminary I attend, Reformed Theological Seminary, wrote a great book on interpreting the Psalms. Uh, I, I learned so much from him, so I'm going to steal from him uh, with all respect due in this introduction because it was so helpful for me in preparing. One of the things I want you to see as we read through, there's this theme that channels through Psalm 1 and 2 in all of the Psalms. Because Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 1 begins with the word, blessed. Psalm 2 ends with what that blessedness means. So there's this blessed sandwich, if you will, in Psalm 1 and 2. And we see the contrast between the wicked and the blessed in the Lord. And we're going to talk about that this morning. This week, one of the books uh, as I, I read for fun, I read 5th century theologians for fun. Um, most of you wouldn't, but this week I was reading... Augustine City of God. Most of you know him as Saint Augustine. Uh, I don't like to apply the moniker Saint to someone because I should just as easily say Saint Cherie or Saint Rick because we are all saints in the Lord. The Catholic Church has attached the uh, title to Augustine but who he was, he was a 5th century theologian, so it's the beginning of the 400s, right at the time when the Roman Empire was being raided and conquered by who they called the barbarians. It was actually a nation of people, the barbarians. And so, when the nation starts to crumble in Rome, it can't defend its borders anymore. Who do they blame? Guess. They blame the Christians. Never happens in our society. Um, but so as Rome is falling, the, the the rulers of Rome are saying we should banish all these Christians because we were fine until these Christians came. So one of the Roman governors who was a Christian asked Augustine to respond to this in writing. So over 15 years, he writes three volumes that become the City of God. If you want to read my short abridged version, it's only 500 pages. Um, but it's, it's been fascinating to read it because it could have been written in our time. And it's based off of Psalm 1. It's based off of the City of God and the City of Man. The way of the blessed in the way of the wicked and nothing has changed since then you could take his quotes out of context and apply them to what's going on right now society seeks for its happiness and its comfort and its entertainment in itself i mean the romans wanted to be happy and entertained i mean as americans that's what we want right we want the right to pursue happiness in our culture it's the right to pursue entertainment um, but they recognize then, some of them, that this happiness that we're, we're seeking is fleeting. So there's this cultural war going on between those who are living according to God's word and those who are living according to the culture. So what I want us to see this morning as we look through what is blessedness. Well, oversimplified blessedness just simply means happiness. But it's so much more than that. Because the Psalms as a whole are an instruction for happiness. But I want us to see that that happiness is rooted in holiness, that is rooted in God. So what do the Psalms say about happiness or being blessed? Let's open our Bibles to Psalm chapter one. We're going to start, we're going to read through. And then I want to point out a few things in Psalm one before we really dig into Psalm two. Psalm one, verse one. but are like chaff, the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in fury, saying, As for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the degree. And the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the king with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, we open your word this morning. Not as dead words to people in centuries past, but as living, active words, a sword that pierces bone and marrow, that splits the wicked from the righteous, this tension that has been going on since the, our first days in the garden, of man wanting his throne and you're anointed on his throne. What does that truth mean for us today? Lord, I hope it is abundantly clear of what it means to be blessed, what it means to follow the blessed one and take refuge in him. Lord, I pray that as my words are spoken this morning, that it would not be my own, that it would not be my own desires, but that your word would speak through me, that your spirit would guide me and guide those who hear this morning to repentance, conviction, and faith in the truth of the eternal Son the anointed Messiah, the King of Zion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one thing I want you to notice structurally here before we get in. Psalm 1 sets the foundation for all of the other psalms. And Psalm 1 has a clear structure. Now, many times we read through the psalms and don't wonder why words are used where they're words. The psalmists, they were brilliant Hebrew writers. One thing you would never know by reading in English The first word of Psalm 1 begins with the first Hebrew letter. So Aleph means blessed. The last word of the first psalm is perish, which is the last Hebrew letter, which means perish. So the first psalm is the contrast between the blessedness and those who perish. sets the stage for all of the other psalms. Also, you'll see that Psalm 1 ends with the theme of perishing, while Psalm 2 ends with the theme of blessedness. The stage is set for the wickedness of man, but we're not left there. We're coming to a conclusion, the blessedness that is in the refuge in the blessed one. This contrast, we see this in wisdom literature, between blessedness and wickedness. We see it in the Psalms, we see it in Ecclesiastes, the all-encompassing nature of the Psalms is to the, is the contrast the blessedness of those who are in the Lord and the perishing nature of those who come to nothing. That's what perish means, to come to nothing. So what do we see in Psalm 1? My study this week, I feel like, let me just give you, just to be um, transparent with you guys, I feel like an idiot sometimes when I, when I read commentators like, oh, I understand this. Oh, it's the wicked and the blessed. And then they bring out a hundred things in one verse that I just completely missed. So as I learn, you're going to learn with me. And if this didn't stick out to you the first time reading it, I've read it 10 times. It didn't stick out to me until I read someone who's probably read it a thousand times. Verse one, there's a progression here. Blessed is the man who walks not, nor stands, nor sits. Do you see this progression Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We see three different pictures here. You can walk with the wicked, which is an active participation. You can stand with them in a sense of solidarity, or you can sit with them in comfort. So there is no communion with the wicked where the blessed will flourish. These are all negative statements. Walks not, nor stands, nor sits. So how else does Psalm 1 describe that blessed one? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. We see two themes here. We connect when we understand something. Does our head acknowledge it? And does our heart desire it? We see that here, that the delight in the law is the heart's affections for the knowledge of God, for the things of God. So we have the heart, which delights in the law of God, and the law of God, which is a mental understanding of who God is and what he requires for his people. So the one who is blessed meditates on them day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Florida, we have lots of trees, right? 99% of those trees... How do they grow? A seed falls. Wherever it lands, it grows. The mighty tree grows out of that seed. But not this tree. This tree is planted. Any gardeners out there, anyone who loves to see beautiful landscape, when you plant a tree, you put it in the ideal spot. So the the person who delights in the law of the Lord, the Lord plants him. Places him in the most ideal spot. Where is that ideal spot? Next to the streams of living water. Now, this word for streams in the Hebrew is more accurately described as canal. What is a canal? It's something that is dug out for a purpose to channel water in a specific direction. So if you delight in the law of the Lord, you are planted in the most ideal spot where the water is directed to go. There is a design involved. That is what Psalm 1 is telling us. And then it's contrasted with the wicked. But the righteous, all they do prospers because of these things. And that's a pretty tall order. Because all of us have walked with the wicked, stood with sinners, sat with the scoffers, the mockers, the judgmental. I love uh, this Same command is also given to Joshua. So, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 1 for me. A lot of you may be familiar with this, but I want you to see that this is not a theme for the Psalms, this is a theme for all of Scripture. So, Joshua chapter 1, we're going to read verses 7 through 9. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Look here, do not turn from the right or to the left that you may have good success in wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Those who meditate on God's word will avoid the way of the wicked and they will be blessed. This word word prospers here. It's not what our modern day prosperity preachers would have you believe. That if you do X, Y, and Z, your bank account increases. But if you are delighting in the law of God... He will bring to success what you do because you are motivated by him. We're not talking about monetary success. We're talking about fruit. We're talking about blessings that matter for eternity. But not so with the wicked. The wicked will not stand in, in judgment, meaning they cannot stand up to the standard before God. But who is this blessed one in the first few verses? One of the commentaries was really helpful to me. Uh, There's a preaching in the word series, full disclosure here. And there's a story told about Joseph Flats. Um, And I want to read this to you. I could rephrase it, but it's so beautiful that I want you to to see this. This is missionary about 100 years ago in the Middle East, teaching from Psalm 1 to a crowd of Jews and Muslims. Listen to how he teaches the same passage that we just looked at. A man named Joseph Joseph Flats was visiting Palestine in the early 20th century. He had an opportunity to address a gathering of Jews and Arabs and decided to speak on the first psalm. He read it in Hebrew and discussed the verb tenses. Then he asked the question, Who is this blessed man of whom the psalmists speak? This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of mockers, he was an absolutely sinless man, but no one spoke. So Flax said, was he our great father Abraham? One old man said, no, can't be Abraham. Abraham denied his wife and he told a lie about her. Well, how about the lawgiver Moses, Flax asked. No, someone else said, it can't be Moses. He killed a man and he lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. Flax then suggested David. But of course it was not David, because he committed both murder and adultery. There was a long silence. Then an elderly Jew arose and said, My brothers, I have this little book here. It is called the New Testament. I have been reading it. And if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it was true, I would say that the man of this first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Christ is the blessed one. And Psalm 2 is the most direct and full expression of Christ in the entire Old Testament. God's anointed or the Messiah, the king on his holy hill and his only begotten son. It is the full expression of his deity and his humanity in the very beginning of the Psalms. So as we look At Psalm 2, let's see how our eyes are open and how we've missed these glaring road signs in this Psalm that maybe we've read a hundred times, maybe we've never read. But this is as much the Christ of the New Testament as it is here in Psalm 2. The first thing I want you to understand as we get into Psalm 2 is that there are four participants here. We've got the narrator, which sets the stage. The... Wicked, and then God and His anointed. There's also a fifth person that, that shows up here toward the end, and we're going to look at that uh, when we get to verse 10. But first of all, the narrator sets the stage for us. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This word plot is the same word as meditate that is used in Psalm 1. The righteous meditate on God's word, the wicked Meditate against God. That word literally means murmur. When you see Jews praying, they murmur to themselves and rock back and forth. It's an out loud meditation. So the wicked meditate against God and against his anointed. Does it sound like our world? And that sound familiar? The world's no different. The world is no different than when Satan meditated in his mind to rebel against God. And passed on that rebellion to Adam and Eve who meditated in their minds to become like God themselves. The same is the Tower of Babel. When when men came together and meditated with one another to become like God. So when we spoke earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism that our hearts hate God and hate our neighbor. Doesn't sit well on, on our modern tongue. Because we love to hear how great we are. But truly, from the very beginning, we hated God because our father hated God, because the fallen angel Lucifer hated God. But only through the blessed one do we see any different. So when people complain about the world and the nation's raging, or we're tempted to complain, or we're tempted to worry, we need to be reminded who is ruling. And we're going to see that in a minute. Because when the people rage, it's not against us. It's against God's Anointed, Because they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this is a direct um, quote in Acts chapter 4. I want us to turn to Acts chapter 4. Because when the apostles are preaching right after Pentecost, what do they choose to preach on? Psalm 2. Who is Psalm 2 talking about? And who is warring against God's anointed? Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 24 through 28. Starting in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, Said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now the apostles knew that the nations were raging against Christ. But they also knew that it was not outside of God's control. This was not new news to God. But what we see here is lesser kings of earth trying to usurp the one true king, the king of kings. The rulers in this world were literally against God's anointed. You know, the ways of the wicked in Psalm 1 are ultimately against God's anointed, the blessed one. You know, we see the picture in 1 Samuel 16 when David is anointed, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and there's this special calling. It was for David, but it was also for the house of David through Jesus would come one day to be the anointed one to fulfill this psalm. The Israelites were... And are looking forward toward the anointed one of David. Too bad they set their sights too low. They were looking for someone who would become a king on earth. not Not someone who would reign over all the earth for all time. And then the wicked speak. They say, let us burst their bonds apart. Cast away their cords from us. The world wants to break the bonds of those who are bonded to Christ as servants in obedience. They want to cast away the cords that connect us to our Lord. If you read the history of the Roman Empire, you see that when Christianity first rose, the Caesars, the rulers, the governors hated Christians. They cursed Christians. The emperors wanted to extinguish any rumors of this God-King who was coming out of Galilee. But one by one, they went crazy. They were assassinated. They had their throne taken from them because they were raging against the king of God, the, the true king from Galilee. One of the favorite accounts that I read about this guy who's got a great name. His name is Julian the Apostate. Of course, his name is Julian the Apostate. He was known for taking his dagger and pointing it to heaven, defying the son of God, defying this king from Galilee. But appropriately on the battlefield, stuck by a dagger, covered in blood, throws his hands in the air and shouts, Thou has conquered, O Galilean. Every wicked king is going to exclaim that at some point, either in death here or in judgment one day. That is the anointed king in this passage. Thou has conquered thou Galilean so what is God's response to these proud kings verse four he who sits in the heavens and laughs the Lord holds them in derision what a great verse God laughs it's not biblical but it's true and you've all heard the saying make God laugh tell him your plans um you know, Shri and I talk all the time about how God has this sense of humor. We put this grand scheme together and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And he always ends up being so much different and so much better in just putting our little feeble plans to shame. You know, I get this picture when I was thinking through this this week of, um, for those of you who are dog people and if you have little dogs, I'm sorry, but I don't understand the purpose of little dogs, you know. <laughs> The little dogs that just bark and make noise, and they, they think they're a lot tougher than they are. You know, chihuahuas who will stand up to anything of any size. The, the laugh I pictured here was this Doberman walking by, this little chihuahua, just yiping at him. This Doberman's like, ha, ha, your breakfast. You know, we all know these tough little dogs, these tough little kings. You know, who try to stand up to God and push their chest out. This is the only place in scripture where God laughs. It's not a funny laugh, though. This is a scary laugh. Those pitiful, weak, pathetic rulers of the earth. Are you kidding me? You want to rage against me? See, we're always told that sin is missing the mark. That's a cute little archery picture. Now, the word does mean to miss the mark. But the biblical sense is saying, I want to rule on the throne and not you. That's sin. I want my kingdom. I don't want God's king to rule. So what does God's voice do? Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This isn't. The nice, gentle God who loves sin of every persuasion, does it? How does God respond to, to, to sin? What well, could be more terrifying than God placing his king on a throne and taking his vengeance out on you? This, I picture the bully, right? The bully's on his little playground and he's manipulating all the kids who are younger and weaker, who can't defend themselves. Then the moment he turns around and realizes that one of those young weak kids is a big brother, special forces Navy SEAL who looks down, says, so "You pathetic little bully! Think you can control your own little kingdom on this on this playground?" The Lord of Hosts has armies of angels at his command. These aren't just nice angels with harps; these are ones with with shields and swords who can drop the nations of the wicked in a heartbeat. But God's response here is that the king of heaven appoints his king on earth. Verse 6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This doesn't correspond to any king being set on a throne in, in Israel's history. You know, by all accounts, Israel was a small, insignificant nation in its time. This is not historical, but this is theological. This is God setting his king on his throne. God the Father is saying, what are you thinking, trying to plot against me and make a temporary kingdom? Don't you know I've already anointed a king and I've established his throne forever? Who do you think you're fooling? That's how God laughs. So what is the response? God the Father says, I set my king. Now someone else speaks. I will tell of this decree. The Lord said to me. So it's not the same one who spoke just a verse ago, but now someone else is speaking. You are my son. Who could that be? Second person speaks. You are my son. We Remember we have the narrator, God the Father. Now the son speaks. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. My son, this is used Twice in all three of the synoptic gospels, basically means synopsis, Matthew, Mark and Luke all say, my son. After Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, a voice comes from heaven in Luke 935 and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's one and the same as in Psalm 2. This is Christ's declaration about an established truth of who God has anointed and appointed him to be. This is the first connection between the father and son. We see this conversation played out. You know, when Christ came, he was incarnated. The word in the New Testament is monogenes in in the Greek. just means only begotten or unique one. It's not a distortion of some biological sexual encounter like a lot of people like to distort. This is the only time this has ever happened. The one son of God, the familial relational son, not biological in our weak minds trying to put it into our terms. This is the anointed of God being begotten on his throne. Now, if you remember, the Pharisees, one of the things that they hated Jesus for was that he said, that God is his father. They didn't hate him for the claim. They hated him for what it stood for. Because this wasn't a new claim. This is Psalm 2. They should have known this very well, that, that you are my son. Today I have begotten you. They hated David. They hated the prophecy from a thousand years earlier. And so what do we see as we go on That the Father is giving all to the Son in verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth their possession. He's making him Lord, Lord of all. The rule of Christ will encompass, encompass all nations. And they will either rule with him in glory or they'll be subject to him under his feet. But this, ladies and gentlemen, this is the basis for the Great Commission. Because the ends of the earth are our Lord's possession. We can and should proclaim the truth of the gospel. Every evangelist, every missionary should cry out, worship the true king. He possesses all the earth. Run from these fake gods. Run from these little kings. Praise the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. If you've been paying attention the past couple weeks, what verse is that? Someone say it. Psalm 96. Other than my wife. <laughs> she, she should know it. Psalm 96 two. It's the theme verse for this series. Praise the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That's who I want us to be as a people. We lift God's name up. We bless His name because He's the blessed one, and we tell of those truths every day of our lives. But how do we know this is really about Christ? I could spend hours talking about the New Testament references that confirm this account in Psalm 2. I'm just going to mention a couple. Jesus, in his own words in John 5:22, says, "The Father judges no one." but has given me all ju- but has given all judgment to the son. Now we see the judgment of the son in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of God, the king of Zion is the judge and ruler of all, the punisher of the wicked. He'll put to shame the efforts of man In this life and in his second coming, he will rule and break them. I want you to see several things here. This is a list of certainties that God is declaring to us, starting in verse 6. As for me, I have set. The son says in verse 7, I will tell. You are my son. As for me, verse 8, I will make the nations your your heritage. Verse 9, you shall break them all of these certainties one after another after another these are not maybes these are not suggestions these are certainties one thing that I've been teaching on the past few weeks and I want you to see as a Christian is this theme through scripture of the already not yet if you haven't gotten it we're going to talk about it over and over and over and over again because as we see in verse 6 this is not future this is already I have set my king on Zion my holy hill it's already been done Jesus is already reigning, but yet there's a not yet that comes in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. There is something to come. There is a judgment to come. We rest in the truth of the already, look forward to what is to come. Hebrews 2.8 explains this already, not yet to us. Now, on putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Hebrews 2.8 tells us that all things are under Christ's control, but it's not visible to us yet. There are still some things that are not yet unfolded, but Revelation takes it a step further that the righteous will share in this with him, quoting directly from Psalm 2, Revelation 2 26 and 27 tells us the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority to the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earth and pots are broken into pieces, even I, even as I myself have have received authority from my father. Jesus is quoting a verse talking about him ruling over the wicked. And he's writing to a church in Revelation about them ruling with him. Under the same authority that the Father has given him. So as Christians, we're not in heaven with harps sitting on a cloud in some weak cartoon. We are executing the authority and judgment of the king reigning with him. I feel a little more empowered to proclaim the gospel, knowing that. You know, sitting on a on a cloud with a harp isn't the best sales pitch for the believer or the non-believer but our realization that the king is already reigning and we will one day rule with him should empower us a little bit so this crashing thunder of judgment leads to the close of this letter this declaration of instruction wants to drive home this force. Remember we talked about in Paul's letters in scripture the indicative appears before the imperative. Quick review, the indicative indicates something, what is true. The imperative tells what to do with that information. So what is true sets the tone for the command. Now is the imperative, the command. Listen how the voice changes. Now this is still Someone speaking with divine authority, but it's not the Father, it's not the Son. That's why it it leaves many scholars to believe, and I think it makes sense here, that the Holy Spirit is now instructing and guiding the kings of earth and saying, kings of earth, you have been put on notice. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, listen to the commands here. Be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth. Another command, serve the Lord with fear. Another command, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, another command, an imperative, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, closing with blessed are those who take refuge in him. A couple things I want to see here. You know, this should be our prayer for our leaders in our country as we look to an election as we look to who we will put our our, our trust in i don't care if you wear the name of christian to get a few more votes but you're sitting on your own throne unless you serve the lord with fear unless you rejoice before him with trembling and kiss the son i'm not fooled you are not a servant of the lord We're never going to get that perfect servant, but that's why we don't put our hope in politics. We don't put our hope in elections. We put our hope in the blessed one, the only one who kept Psalm one perfectly. Because Psalm verse eleven tells us that you can seek your own glory, or you can serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. How many of us have ever rejoiced with trembling? What a weird thought to be so joyful that we tremble before our Lord. We fall short of that. I fall short of that. That is how great and awesome and powerful that king is. We should serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do we come before the Lord like that? But what I want you to see here as verse 12 starts, just as further proof that this is Christ the anointed. Serve the Lord with fear. We know that's God. The next command is to kiss the son. It's the same object. Serve the Lord. Kiss the son. Rejoice with trembling. The Lord and the son are one. As early as Psalm 2, there was no difference between the begotten son and the Lord who set him on his throne in Zion. Lest, this transition verse, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. That way of the wicked from Psalm 1. For his wrath is quickly kindled. It can set ablaze in just a moment. This is the only time that wrath is appropriate. It's the same wrath from Romans 1. is acceptable because it's God's wrath poured out on the ungodly. The son's anger, his wrath is not incorrect here, but correct against those who don't serve him and don't rejoice before him with trembling. But where do we close? The last line here, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our God is merciful. Christ is merciful to those who repent of their wickedness and take refuge in him. We take refuge, the foot of the cross, because that's where his wrath was satisfied. If you do not take your refuge in the cross, that wrath is still on you. Christ is Lord and Savior over all. We see in verse 8 that he is Lord over all. All the nations are his possession. He's the judge in verse 9 because he takes out his wrath on the wicked. But he's the savior in verse 12. Because if you take refuge in him, if you turn from the wicked ways of the world, you will be blessed like he is blessed. Blessed are those who find their comfort in him and not themselves. This is the constant current throughout the Psalms. That refuge and salvation and peace can be found in God's anointed the coming king. Blessedness is happiness in holiness. Which is what all the psalms and all of scripture are meant to declare. There is no happiness apart from the holiness of God. So how do we conclude this message? What do we take away this morning? What does it mean to be blessed? First, You must be united with the blessed one. There's only one who walked perfectly, stood perfectly, and sat perfectly, who meditated perfectly on God's law day and night. Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who is holy. There is no happiness apart from the holiness of God. All else is fleeting. You want to see that? Read Ecclesiastes. But it's only in this belief that we can have blessed assurance. We're going to sing that in just a moment. I love how this hymn shows us that already, not yet. You know the words. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That isn't already. We possess that as believers. If you have taken refuge in the Savior, you already have the blessed assurance that is in Jesus. What comes next? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. A foretaste is a little piece of what is to come. That is the not yet. The already that Jesus is mine. The not yet that there is glory divine to come. We're going to sing this truth this morning. As soon as we close this message. Forgive me when I lose sight of this. Forgive us when we lose sight of this. That is why the Christian life is one of repentance and belief. So what do we leave with this morning? Repent. Turn from the ways of the world. Turn from the ways of the wicked. And believe. Trust in the blessed one. And take refuge in him. This never has an expiration date for us until Christ comes again. Only then will you be blessed. Let's pray. Sometimes we just need to sit in silence and reflect on the sobering truth that is the gospel. Lord, forgive us when our gospel is smaller than this. Forgive us when our God is weaker than this. Forgive us when we have not given you the proper authority and glory and honor and praise that you deserve because you are reigning on your throne. All is in your name. Let us take refuge in you. Let us turn from the ways of the world. When the world disappoints us, when it saddens us, that we would find our joy in you. That we would rejoice with trembling at the power and the majesty of your name. And as we sing that this morning and close out our service, Lord, that we would believe it, that we would take it to heart. And if we have never believed it, that our souls would break at this truth and we would turn to you in faith and trust your hope, your salvation, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the King. Amen.